All right, we are in Romans 8, verse 28 this evening. Uh, So just the one verse, but allow me to read it for us. And then I'll pray uh, for God's grace as we uh, seek his truth in his word tonight. Let me read Romans 8, 28. Is that the ESV? He says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the word of God, and that is what we will be studying tonight. Uh, Let me pray for us. God, you are so great. You are perfect. You are mighty. You are holy. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, we ask that as we have come here tonight, that we would worship you, that we would exalt your name, that you would be glorified. I ask that your spirit would help us in this time, give us understanding, and that you would help me, my own weakness, Lord, that I would clearly and accurately speak your truth. Give us your grace, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. No matter how old uh, or how young you are, life is full of ups and downs. And there are moments and seasons of great joy and happiness and bliss. There are other moments and there are seasons of great sadness and suffering and despair. And for some, their life consists maybe mostly of the sunshine and the flowers, of the good days, and and not a lot of trials, not a lot of suffering, not a lot of hardships. For others, their life consists maybe mostly of clouds and rainstorms, the bad days, the trials, the sufferings, the hardships. And in either case, in, in the good days and the bad days, God is present. And often it's quite easy to see God's presence in the sunshine and the flowers, right? And we can and we should easily give him thanks and praise in those times. It's easy maybe to sing loudly and rejoice and say thank you, God, when things are going great. But God is just as present in the sunshine and flowers as he is in the clouds and the rainstorms. And God is just as in control just as good, just as powerful, just as worthy to be worshipped and thanked and praised in the stormy seasons as he is in the sunny seasons. And in either situation we see that God has great promises and a great plan for the believer. Now this week we approach, I think, one of the most well-known and favorited verses, possibly in all of Romans. Everyone probably has their favorite Romans verse, uh, but I think this is probably up there for a lot of people. You likely have heard it before. You've probably memorized it. Uh, Maybe even it it has brought you great comfort and peace at certain times in your life. And indeed, it is a wonderful verse. It is small, but it is mighty, much like some of you little junior hires. It holds incredible truth. In this one verse, we see God's great promise and plan for the Christian. 
We see that God is all-powerful and that he is always in control. Now, if you remember, Paul had just said in verse 26, we saw this last week, he said that we do not know what we ought to pray for. And then now he immediately follows it up with, we do know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him. I think there's great comfort in understanding both of those truths together. While we often may be at a loss of words in our prayers, right? We looked at that last week. While we may not know what to pray for, this we do know that God has a plan. And it is a perfect plan. And he will carry it out. We may not always know what it is that God is doing in our lives, but we know that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that his plan is perfect. And that's what we see in this verse. So tonight we're going to look simply at at two main points. We're going to look at the content of God's great promise and plan. And then we're going to look at the extent of God's great promise and plan. Okay, so just two main points here. The first, as I just said, is the content of God's great promise and plan. The content of God's great promise and plan. And we'll look at two sub points for this. The first is this, that... This promise is a promise of power, of power that God causes all things to work together for good. We see that in 28b. Power. God causes all things to work together for good. Now, if you're taking notes, just know this is going to be our largest section. And we're going to be here for a long time. So it's not that I forgot to move us on to the next point. If you're taking notes, it's all going to fall under this sub point. All right. That God causes all things to work together for good. I want to look at really each of those. That God causes all things to work together for good. All right, so first off, it's important to know that it is God who causes all things to work together for good. Now, some translations differ in this. The ESV, which I read, for instance, leaves out the word God. Whereas the NASB, the NIV, and others include it. And it's a small detail, but it makes a big impact. I do believe that a better translation would include that God works all things together for good. The things themselves don't work itself out for good. It's not that the, that the things of this world, they, they just have a way of, of making things right. It's not this, this yin and yang kind of thing of balance. That, that for every evil, there is a counterbalance of good. That's not it. it it's not a karma kind of thing. That, that you'll get what you deserve. And, and if you do good, even though maybe now you're suffering, but if you do good, then eventually the good you deserve will find its way to you. That's not it. The things of this world... Don't work itself out for good. But it is God who has the power. It is God who works all things together for good. Just as it is God who causes everything in the believer's life. Our faith, our repentance, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, and so on and so forth. It is also God who causes all things to work together for our good. And it comes from his hand comes from his gracious hand, right? Because any good that we may receive is purely by his grace. We do not deserve it. A common question that's asked 
when bad things happen is, how could God allow such a bad thing? Like they, they, they were such a good person. Then you think about martyrs that died. And you're like, man, they, they were a good person. Like they, they lived for Jesus. How could God allow something so bad? How could God allow them to die? Or, or when, say, a, a natural disaster or a big earthquake and you see thousands of people die. How could God let all of these people die? Or, or a shooting in a school and you see these, these innocent kids. And you say, how could God allow such a bad thing for all these good little kids just to die? And people see these things, and so they ask, how could God allow bad things to happen to good people? And as we've said here before, that's only happened once in the history of the world. And that was the death and crucifixion of the perfect Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only time something bad has happened to a good person. The real question is, how can God allow good things to happen to such bad people? That's the question. Every good thing we have is by God's grace. We are all undeserving of it. It's not that we are undeserving of the suffering and the trials of the world. We we are deserving of much worse than that. God is gracious. And in his great grace, he works all things together for the good of his people. It is his power and it is his grace that this happens. So we see that it's God. And secondly, still under this point, it's important that it's not just some things that God causes to work together for good. But what? It's all things, he says. All things. It's all inclusive. It has no limits. Literally, God works all things together for good. That would include the natural disasters and causes in this world. That would include when others sin against you. That would include your own sin. It would include all the evil of this world. It includes everything. The point is that there is nothing so big, so catastrophic, that God cannot and will not work together for the good of the believer. Sometimes in the depth of our suffering... We feel as if no good can come from this. We feel as if we are down deep in the pit and there is no hope. And from a worldly perspective, you may be right. But from a biblical and godly perspective, there is nothing too big for God. He works all things together for good. Do you trust the power of God? Do not think so highly about your situation as as if your situation is somehow special. As if, yeah, God works all things together for good, but but not yours. Because yours is just so crazy. James Boyce, he wrote, quote, This tells us that all things that have ever happened to us or can possibly happen to us are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly good. All things that has ever happened or ever will happen is all part of God's order and control. Not only that, but they will inevitably result in our good, Christian. Isn't that incredible comfort to know? 
Isn't that an incredible comfort to know that God is working all things for our good? He's not teaching that that at the end of the day, the the, the scales will kind of balance out to be more good than than bad. That that you might receive a certain amount of weight in in the suffering side of the scale, but eventually you're going to receive the the, the same amount of blessings to to, to pay back the suffering you received. And maybe even more on the blessings. It's not what he's saying. It's not a balance of scales. He's not saying that, that, that you'll never experience harm or difficulty, that, that God will just take any potential harm that, that, that might be put in your life, but, but instead, like, he, he's just going to turn it into good. Before you can experience it, he's like, no, I'm going to turn that into good. That's not what he's saying. Or, 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 or that the difficulties and the evil of this world will, will be reversed or, or transformed into good. He's not saying that, that we ought to view the suffering, the evil in this world as good and pretend like everything's okay. Suffering and pain and persecution and grief and sorrow and death and sin and sickness and hatred, they're not good. They're evil. Those who, who have been physically and sexually abused, those who've experienced the effects of murder, those who have been lied to, stolen from, betrayed, these are all evil. And by no means do we call them good. These things are not good. And the verse does not teach that these things are good, but it does teach that God uses these things to bring about the good that he has sovereignly planned for his people. This verse teaches that God will take even the worst of things, even the most evil in the world, even the deepest pains on earth to bring about through his infinite wisdom and omnipotence our ultimate good. I'm not saying God uses evil as an instrument to bring about his goodness and righteousness, but rather that God uses sin and suffering evil to bring good to his children. How? By overruling and conquering it. That's what I'm saying. It's not that that, that God has, has a plan B and he says, oh, okay, I, I got to do something here. I got I to gotta make this one right. I got to make this good. No, it is plan A. God sovereignly and powerfully works through all things, be it good or bad. Now, while we are the ones who, who, who make the decision to sin or not, we do. It is all part of God's perfect plan. It's, it, it's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean, it is a great wonder and mystery because both are true at the same time. Neither one voids the other. And I... I would be lying if I said that I completely comprehend and understand the infinite wisdom and workings of God. Like, this is crazy. It is truly a mysterious thing. We are responsible. But God is also completely sovereign. Even over our actions that we choose to do. I think a great example of this is the story of Joseph. Many of you know it. In, the, in his life, we see time and time again the, the decisions and the sins of others that they're responsible for. They are responsible for their sins. But God uses for good and ultimately part of his perfect plan, right? We see the sins of his brothers, their jealousy, 
selling him into slavery. We see the sin of Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him of sexual sin, when in reality he lived in integrity and purity. But what happened is because of all this, because of their sin even, that Joseph was put in position to tell Pharaoh of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And as a result, they were able to store up enough food what, to save the nations. And it was at the end of the story that we see Joseph say to his brother, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Right? I mean, that's Romans 8.28 right there in Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. His brothers made the decision to sin. That was their decision. They meant it for evil. But it did not happen outside of God's sovereign and perfect plan. God meant it for good. Now, it's important to understand, well, what does our verse mean by good? We say, great, God works all things together for good. What, what, what does it mean by good? If we can believe that God works it all out for good, but what if we have a different idea of good than God does? What if our definition of good is different from God's definition of good? By good, does God mean at the end of this you're going to be healthy? Or you're going to be rich? Or you're going to be comfortable? Does God mean that? But by good, does it mean that, that we're going to get what we want? Does good mean that we're going to be delivered from this suffering and we'll finally be happy? That's often our prayer in times of suffering. Deliver me from this so I can be happy. And it's not wrong to ask for deliverance. I'm not saying that. But we must define good according to God's definition, not ours. None of this, the, the, the health or, or the riches or the comfort or, or, or even the happiness, none of this is promised to us here on earth. In fact, many times the faithful and the upright are the ones who suffer and endure extreme hardships for the Lord. And you may look at their life, those who are experiencing deep hardship for the Lord, and you say, man, that doesn't seem very good to me. You sure God is sovereign? Sure God wants the good for you? So what is it? What is this good that Paul is talking about? I think this good can come in many different forms. Allow me just to present a few quickly. One good is that through suffering, we can be shown our great need and dependence of God. Suffering often brings us to our knees. And it's sad that it often takes suffering to bring us to our knees. We should always be in a state of recognition of our total dependence on God. But suffering has a way of helping us get there, does it not? It reminds us of our fragility, of our inefficiencies, of our inadequacies. It reminds us of our dependence on God. And so if you are suffering, do not be prideful. Do not be stubborn, but go to the Lord. As it says in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Another good that we see in suffering is that through suffering we can be assured of our faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials will often test the genuineness of our faith. It's, it's easy to believe the goodness of God when things are going well. Great. But can you still say amen even in the storm? God refines his people in the suffering. And one way he does this, refines his people, sometimes is through discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Wow. God disciplines those whom he loves. Now, never forget the magnificent truth that we discovered in this marvelous chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, which is what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. There is no condemnation for the Christian, but there are still consequences and effects of the sins of the Christian. And sometimes we are living in sin, and we need the gracious discipline of our loving Father. In fact, to live in sin and not be disciplined may be concerning. Similar to what we saw in Romans chapter 1, if you remember, where God gave them up to their sin and said, I'm not going to discipline you. I'm going to let you live in sin and see what happens. And he, he washes his hands clean and says, go ahead and live in sin. And that only led to what? To their own destruction. That's in a worse place to be. If you are a Christian and you are receiving discipline from God, Know that it, it is from his grace and in some way should be assurance of his love towards you. Not that if, if you're suffering, that means you're a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But if you are a Christian, God will show his love for you by not allowing you to continue to live in sin. But instead, he will discipline you. Another good that we see is that through suffering, we learn to hate sin. As we see the consequences of our own sin, as we suffer from the hands of, of, of other people's sin, we begin to understand how gross and how horrible sin actually is. We begin to realize we want no part in this. We begin to realize that sin is not the best way to live, despite what the world says. Instead, we realize that God's design and order is perfect. And so we begin to hate sin. And really, I think all of this, all this good that we, that we just talked about, can be summed up in one way. I think one of the greatest goods and ultimate result of our suffering is actually found in the next verse, which we're going to look at more next week. That what? That we would be conformed into the image of his son. That is the good that comes from our suffering. That we would be made more like Christ. I mean, what greater thing can there be, Christian? If you're a Christian, is that not your greatest desire and goal to be made more like Christ and to live for Christ and to live like Christ? You were created to do what? To worship, right? To worship, to glorify God. And the best way that we can worship in all things is by living like Christ. We suffer so that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. 
That is one of the ultimate goods that can come from our suffering. When we suffer, God is not just just sitting idly by. When we suffer, it's not in vain. When we suffer, Christian, you can be assured that God is doing a work. That he is doing a good work. And one of those good works is conforming you more into the image of his son. So let us not waste our trials. Let us not be so eager to rid ourselves of our trials. But let us be eager to see how we need to be conformed more into the image of Christ. Let us be eager to worship God even in the most difficult of circumstances. So you see, in our suffering, we see the power of God. That it is... God who causes all things to work together for good. Now our second point. We see sovereignty. We see not only is this promise a promise of power, but it's a promise of sovereignty. That God's designed purpose will be carried out. We see this in 28D. Sovereignty. That God's designed purpose will be carried out. God's design purpose will be carried out. There's no question about it. What happens is in accordance to his purpose. God's plan, which is perfect, will happen. And no one will thwart his plan. Our plans are often thwarted. We make plans and they don't work out. For various reasons. If you don't believe me, think about two years ago, 2020, around March. Most people's plans got thwarted. We've all experienced that at some point. Things not going according to plan, but not with God. Not his plans. He is completely sovereign. He is completely in control. His will will always happen. Always will be done. There's no problem. There's no suffering. There's no sin too big for God. Never once has God lost control. Never once has God been overwhelmed. Never once has God been unsure of what should happen next. God is always, God has always, he is always, and will always be in control. Not only will he be in control, will his plan and will be carried out, but his plan and will are perfect. We cannot miss that. It'd be one thing if my plan and will would always be carried out. Because that would not be a comforting thing. That would be a fearful thing. Because my plan and will are not always good. But God's plan and will are always good. They are perfect in every way. And at times we may feel like, this isn't good. Like this, this isn't part of the plan. I wouldn't do it this way. Is it part of God's plan? Would he do it this way? Apparently he would. And I think God knows better than you. He knows better than me. No matter how confused we may be, no matter how horrible it may seem, God's designed purpose is perfect. And it will be carried out. Always. Sometimes we idolize control. 
We want control. We need control. But in reality, we know we shouldn't have control. Our lives are in better hands with God than with us. If you think I'm wrong, we have problems. Give up your need for control and trust in God. His purpose will be carried out. Do you find that frustrating? Or do you find that comforting? That he's in control. That his purpose will be carried out. Is that frustrating to you? Is that comforting to you? I think how you answer that question reveals a lot about your heart. God has a designed purpose. And it is perfect. And it will be carried out. Therefore, we must not worry about tomorrow, Christian. What is there to worry about? God's got it. I'm sure of it. He's in control. He has a perfect plan. And who are we to say otherwise? God is sovereign. So we see the content of God's great promise and plan. And now our next main point is the extent of God's great promise and plan. We'll have two points for this section as well. We see the extent of God's great promise and plan. And first, we see that this promise is for the Christian only, 28C. That this promise is for the Christian only. The context in which this is stated is that for the Christian. This promise that God works all things together for good is not for the non-Christian, but is speaking about the Christian only. How do we know this? Well, he identifies it in two ways. To those who are called and those who love God. Both are terms referring to the Christian and the Christian only. So let's look at both phrases. First, to those who are called. Christians are those who are called by God. And to be called by God is to be chosen and to be redeemed by God. It is a specific call. John 10.3 says that he calls his own sheep by name. That if you are a Christian, he has specifically called you by name. That he has sought you out. He has chosen you and he has redeemed you. This is not by your works, but it is all by the grace of God. If you have been called by God, you belong to him. And that has so many implications behind it. One of which is that this promise is true for you. That God works all things together for your good. Because you've been called by him. And the second phrase is those who love God. And again, we see this referring to all Christians. To love God is an expression that was commonly used in the Old Testament and Jewish writings to refer to God's people, those who love God. Now, this does not suggest that if you don't love God enough, then this promise ceases to be true for you. That for all things to work together for your good, you must love God enough and earn credit with him. No. This phrase, those who love God, refers to the Christian, to every Christian, because all Christians are marked by their love for God. How can you truly be in the faith and not love God? It's impossible. 
This is really the core of the believer. A true, genuine Christian is characterized by their love for God. True saving faith involves much more than just acknowledging or even agreeing with the things of God. It says, yeah, I agree with, with what my parents say and what, and what the pastor says. With the Bible. I agree with that. James 2 says that even the demons believe and they tremble. They would believe too. The demons know that Jesus died on the cross. The demons know that he's coming again and will rule. The demons believe the truth of the Bible, but they don't repent. They don't love God. They hate God. True saving faith results in a genuine love for God. You cannot say you're a Christian and not love God. I mean, it seems simple. And yet I think many people believe that they have true saving faith. But they don't actually love God. They may love things about God. They may love the promises of God. But they don't love God. Do you love him? Do you love God? How do you love him? How do you love God? How does your life reflect that you love him? Does it reflect that? I could look probably at most of your lives and say, yeah, they love this. Or, yeah, they love that. Could someone look at your life and say, they love God. What does it mean to love God? What does that look like? It means many things. To love God means that you long for communion with him. Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says... As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see the longing? Your soul thirsts for God. It's a longing to be in his word. It's a longing to gather together and worship him. It's a longing to be with him. To love God also means that you love what God loves and you hate what he hates. He hates sin. And so you begin to hate sin more and more because how could you desire to do something that you know is against your greatest love? And he loves his glory. And so you begin to love his glory more and more because you have no greater desire than to glorify him. To love God also means that you love God's people. The very people in which God has loved. The very people in which God has died for. These people you love. Because you love who he loves. To love God also results in obedience to God. John 14, 21. John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, manifest myself to him. If you truly love God, you will obey his commands. Not out of guilt, but out of joy. Not perfectly, but dependently on his spirit. Your obedience to God often is a reflection of your love for God. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you really, truly, genuinely love God? If so, 
then praise God for his grace. Because this love does not start with us. It is initiated by God. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Do not think that you are so great to have made such an intelligent decision to love God. You love God because he first loved you. Because he chose you and decided to snatch you out of death and bring you into life. All by his grace. And if you do not know this love of God. If you do not love God. I pray that God would do a miracle in your soul. Because you need the love of God more than anything. And there's no love greater than the love of God. Amen. Lastly, we see that the Christian can confidently trust in the promises of God. The Christian can confidently trust in the promises of God. This is 28a. Let's not miss how this verse starts off. We can just blow right through it. Paul says what? We know. Let's stop right there. We know, he says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know. Or, or really, it can be translated as we can know. Because there are those who will doubt this promise. Paul says we can know, and the context suggests that we do know with confidence. Notice, this verse doesn't say we feel that God works all things for good. It says we know. Oftentimes when we are in the pit, we don't feel good at all. We don't feel like God's doing good. In fact, we may not even feel that God is good. Maybe we feel like God's being unfair. Or, or maybe we feel like God is being mean. Or he's lost control. Or we feel that he's forgotten us. I have felt all of those things. But we must not be deceived by our feelings. We must not be led by our feelings when they contradict what is true. What is true? That God works all things for the good to those who love him. Whether you feel like it or not, that is the truth. And this we know. He doesn't say that we feel God is doing good. And notice he also doesn't say that we see God doing good. We may never see on this side of eternity the good that God has done. We may never see the wonders and complexity of how God uses evil for good. The text doesn't say that we will see, but the text says that we know. And we must be content with what we know, even if we can't see it. That is faith. Do you have faith in the promises of God? In the times in which it doesn't feel like God is doing good for you. In the times in which you can't see the good God is doing for you. In the times in which it seems like all is going wrong and there is no hope and there is no end in sight. Do you have faith in the promises of God? Do you trust? Do you know that God works all things together for your good? 
Do you really know that? Do you really know that? When times are good, when, when things are going well, then there's no complaints, there's no hardships, there's no suffering. Life is easy, life is cush, life is good. It's pretty easy to say and believe that. It's easy to say, yeah, all things work together for the good. Of course, I'm living it. What about when things don't go good? What about when the loved one dies? What about when your parents lose a job? What about when your friend says something very mean and you, and you feel alone in this world? Do you still know that? Do you still believe that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him? Christian, have confidence in the promises of God. God never lies, and he always fulfills his promises. As we close, I hope you have found comfort in this verse. I hope you can see God's great promise and plan is good. I hope you can trust the promises of God with certainty. And I know some of you have suffered greatly. I know some of you are still suffering greatly. And in, I, I in no way want to minimize or, or make light of your suffering. I know some of you suffer deeply. And you feel great pain and hurt. And my hope is not for you to say, oh, it's... It's no big deal. It's fine. I know it's good. I, I know I, I know God's going to work it to, for, for good. You're not fine. You're hurt. And it's okay not to be fine. And it's okay to be hurt. But my hope for you is, is to take your pain and to take your hurt and to lay it at the feet of Jesus and know with confidence that he is on his throne and that he has your ultimate good in hand. No matter the size of your trial or suffering. The greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of mankind resulted in the greatest good humanity has ever received. The crucifixion of Christ. I mean, imagine if you would be in one of the 12 disciples. Or let's do 11. One of the 11 disciples. Let's leave out Judas, okay? Imagine you're one of the, those 11 disciples. I mean, and he's arrested. And, and, and I know this is Jesus. I, 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 lived, I followed him for three years. I, I, I left my life to follow him. And now, now an army just, just took him. And now people are beating him. And they're whipping him and they're spitting in his face. And he's not doing anything. And now I see him on that cross. And he's not doing anything. I thought he, he could save people. They're saying, you, you say you can save others, but save yourself. And he's not. What's happening? And then sure enough, he dies. I mean, imagine. I mean, what sorrow. What, I mean, what, what are you thinking for, 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 for those three days? But then on that third day, what? I mean, they were able to see the good. Eventually, right? As Christ revealed to them, as he rose from the dead. In the death of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his death by the hands of his own creation. I mean, it is the most vulgar and evil thing that's ever happened. 
But what man meant for evil, God meant it for good. Not his plan B, but his plan A from the beginning. And because of this horrific event, we now have access to the Father through Christ. We now have complete salvation in him. If you are not a Christian, if you're here non-Christian, I, I mentioned earlier that this promise in this verse, this promise is not for you. It's for the Christian only. And so if you're not a Christian, I, I cannot comfort you with the, with, with the promise of God that, that, that God works all things together for your good. That's not what this says. But this I can promise. This I can promise you. That Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What you need is not to place your hope in the things of this world. What you need is not to place your hope in your own works or your own intellect or what you do or anything else. What you need is to place your hope in Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. You are an enemy of God. And you are destined for wrath. But in Christ, you have hope. Hope of eternal life and a loving relationship with God the Father. You need Christ. Place your faith in the finished work of Christ. Repent of your sins and bow your knee in submission to God, the ruler of all. Now, Christian, I hope that you can find great comfort and peace in the promise that we have seen tonight. I hope that that is comforting. Because you can know with confidence, without a shadow of a doubt, that every aspect of your life is in the sovereign, all-powerful hands of God and will always and ultimately lead to your good and His glory. Always. And not only that, but even greater than that, is that your greatest trial has been dealt with and has already resulted in your good. It's done. There is no greater problem than that of your sin and your standing with God. But Christian, you have been set free and you have been saved. And that trial has already been dealt with. You have already been seated in the heavenlies. It is complete. It is finished. So Christian, you can rejoice in that. So Christian, go in peace. Go in peace with joy. Confident in God's great promise and plan for your life. Let me pray. God, we thank you and we rejoice in your great power and your great sovereignty. God, that you are in control, that you have what's best. Lord, I pray that we would trust you in all things. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering. God, that you would help them see you, that you would give them peace and faith and trust in you. Lord, comfort them in their hardship and their pains. Lord, for those that things are going well, I pray that even that they would know you are sovereign over. And even in that, they can rejoice and give you thanks. And Lord, that you would use them to comfort those in need and in pain. And God, for those in here who do not know you, Lord, I pray whatever they think might be their greatest problem, Lord, they realize that it's not. Their greatest problem is their sin against you. 
and the wrath that is over their heads. Lord, save them. I pray you would open their eyes to see you. Lord, be with us in this time of discussion. May we be honoring and glorifying to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.